Welcome back. It's nice to see so many people in person. Still feels weird, <laughs> but it's good. We also have people joining us online. Um, today, we're going to have Royden Saw from Island Conservation introduce our speaker. And the only other housekeeping thing is the announcement that we are still doing the GES write-in every Tuesday. The link is on the website. Come have some accountability with your work and um, some small limited chat. Uh, and then does anyone else have any announcements that they would like to make to the group? Okay, great. Can everybody hear me okay? It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Steve Prager. Um, We've been friends for a long time and uh, we've started communicating in an academic matter a little bit more recently late, lately, but his academic and uh, career credentials includes a bachelor's and master's of science at UNC Charlotte. Uh, we met in graduate school. He got his PhD at Simon Fraser University in uh, geography. And uh, from there worked both in uh, at the uh, Lockheed Martin for a little while before uh, moving to the University of Wyoming in Laramie, where he became a tenured professor in geography. Uh, his publications are diverse and numerous and uh, findable on the internet and in the library, but his career diverged a little bit from the normal career path and he moved to the International Center for Tropical Agriculture, or CIOT, in uh, Cali, Colombia, where he became principal scientist for the Climate Resilient Food Systems Group. Uh, while at CIOT, he also uh, founded the IRB there and focused on publication, uh, publication guidelines. So that's the, some of the academic and the, um, the career dynamics, but also, I want to speak to his character because uh, after knowing him for a long time, um, I can tell you that he really works on some of the wicked problems globally. And before that, he focused on them locally. And so for the time that I've known him, he has really been service oriented and he's an altruist. I call him uh, altruistic realist. And I think that serves him well in his career. He's served as a beach lifeguard and uh that is comes with harrowing uh actual terrifying dynamics that you have to face and uh in the years that i have known him we have faced together uh character exposing events and uh those events have been faced by steve with grace and just as important with humor at times um so i'm really glad to introduce him here at the colloquium for GES. So without further ado, Steve. It's a little unusual having like your closest friend introduce you. So thank you, Royden. Uh, he knows all the skeletons in the closet. He knows where the closets are <laughs> and everything else. Um, uh, first off, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Uh, uh, thank you to you all for, for bearing with me for the next hour or so. And thanks to Fred for, um, uh, for the invitation. 
as I was explaining to uh, Fred, this is a bit of uh, let's call it experimental uh, type of presentation. It's experimental because I'm in the midst of a career transition. As Royden highlighted, I tend to be good at career <laughs> transitions. And uh, uh, right now I am just in this, uh, this phase where uh, I am going to be sweating because of this humidity. Does anyone have like a napkin or a paper towel or something to give me just so I don't drench my forehead? That'll be perfect. Thank you. So, so again, uh, 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 I'm I'm in the midst of this this something of a career transition. I had been working as as a principal scientist in, in the international ag development research arena uh, for the last eight years in, in, in Colombia and decided it was time to sort of look at those types of problems from another perspective. And an opportunity came along to join the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I had long conversations with, uh, with them over a series of, of uh, weeks and months and ultimately decided that it looked like a really interesting and really kind of new way of, of, of interacting with, uh, with agriculture development uh, uh, research, but actually the agriculture development outcomes more broadly. So what I'm going to talk about today is, is a little bit of what we do and how we do it. I'm not going to get too deep into the specifics of, of any one element of it, but I'll put a lot of, of different areas of work on the screen. And at some point, if anyone wants to ask additional questions or have a conversation about any of those, whether it's in the Q&A uh, section of the presentation or or uh, afterwards in any of the uh, the uh, the one-on-one -on -one engagements, that's that's perfectly fine. I'd also like to take ju uh, just a minute to introduce my uh, colleague uh, uh, Nick Bate. Nick uh, is also fairly recently uh, uh, joining the uh, the uh, uh, um, foundation. Nick has been with the foundation. A couple of months longer than I have, maybe a month longer than I have. So he's he's my senior, and I defer any hard questions to 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 uh, Nick. Uh, he he likewise comes from the foundation from a bit of a different perspective. He had worked for uh, uh, Pairwise here in 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 the the research triangle area uh, for several years uh, as a crop scientist, and then prior to that with uh, with Syngenta. So in terms of the certain expertise of the GES folks. He's probably slightly more aligned than, uh, than myself, but we're, we're happy to have, have conversations about the broad range of what it is that we do in, in, in agriculture development at the foundation. Uh, I was struggling a bit to try and figure out how to merge this talk with some of my own research interests and kind of draw some continuity. So let's see if, um, if we pull that off. I've always been very much interested in innovation and the way innovation processes work, the way innovation translates to impact on the ground, particularly in the ag research for, for international development arena. And one of the last papers that I wrote while I was with the, uh, the International Center for, for Tropical Agriculture was on the theme of labor productivity. So I'm gonna very loosely weave that into the talk today because it's something that's really important. I think it's an interesting uh, uh, a point to engage with as we're thinking about how we can have broader impact on the world and improve the lives of, of, of uh, agriculture producers the, uh, the, uh, the world over. 
So just a little bit about the scope of the foundation work with a note to recognize that these data are constantly changing. This is a, uh, this is a moving target. There's uh, quite a few different program strategies within the foundation. These are the portfolios of work. And I'll talk a little bit more about how those uh, 41 plus programs are distributed among the, uh, the different units of the foundation. Uh, at the time of this, the, the uh, uh, grant support was somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 billion and it's continuing to climb. There's been several news stories lately about new money moving uh, uh, into the foundation and that money is of course being relayed to, to the grantees as quickly as, and as effectively as possible. While we do work with partners and work in uh, 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 quite a few countries around the world, there is a very specific geographic focus, and I'll talk a little bit about how that, that informs our, um, our work. Uh, employee and headcount at the foundation is a really interesting subject because it, it, it's the kind of organization that could grow and grow, but at the same time needs to itself operate in a lean and efficient manner. And so there's a lot of, of, of sort of internal dialogue. How, you know, how do we grow very deliberately? How do we bring the right people on at the right time? And so, so actually for the, the size of the organization and, and the work that it does, it's a, it's a fairly uh, small number of people. And uh, these folks are, are distributed worldwide in, in, uh, in uh, many instances. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,400 grantees. Um, again, that's a number that's that's constantly uh, climbing, uh, and and th as is the the uh, number of grants. Important to highlight that the foundation has both an international component and a U.S. component. I am less acquainted with the U.S. component, more familiar with uh, the international component, and specifically uh, the agriculture component of the international work that we do. The foundation also keeps in touch with its alumni uh, for purposes of networking. And as people move into the foundation from organizations like I came from, the CGIAR, uh, I might spend some time with the foundation that I might move on to either back into that arena to a university or uh, possibly to another philanthropic organization. And, and so there's, there's a really tight network of uh, foundation alumni as well. Um, now, I just mentioned the CGIAR. Can I just have a show of hands? Who knows who and what the CGIAR is? Okay, maybe a third. The CGIAR is the, it's the, used to be an acronym. Now it's the, the CGIAR as a brand. Uh, but when it was an acronym, it was a, the Consultative Group for International Agriculture Research or the Consortium Group for International Agriculture Research, depending on who you ask. That is an umbrella organization that was founded uh, 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 shortly after the sort of bulk of the, uh, the push of the Green Revolution with some of the international research centers that were uh, sort of some of the founders of a lot of the Green Revolution activities. And it was based on the observations both positive and negative that came out of the Green Revolution with a recognition that there's a lot of opportunity to improve lives of farmers, make sure uh, uh, people are well-fed, have access to appropriate technology, appropriate varieties, and, and uh, so on, if we did it in an organized fashion. And, and so the CG is the umbrella organization of what were 15 centers distributed around the world working in different crops and, and uh, commodities. It's a very interesting organization. It does a lot of research. And over the years, it, it started off with this sort of green revolution emphasis, but then has also gotten uh, very much into uh, climate adaptation, climate mitigation, uh, the, the uh, uh, socio-ecological aspects of the development system. And, and it's one of the key partners that we have within 
uh, uh, within the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to do the work that we do in agriculture development. Um, so, so as as mentioned, we work in in a very mission oriented fashion. Those forty one plus portfolios that that I mentioned are divided across these sort of four uh, foundation level missions, which are to ensure that uh, our children young and young people survive and thrive. Uh, that's really really important. Empower the poorest. That's create opportunities for for the uh, uh, the poorest folks in developing countries. Uh, and not just developing countries, but also look at social inequity here in um, in the U.S. as well, and the role of education and and uh, um, and other aspects to uh, to improve equity, uh, combat infectious diseases, and that's both in humans and animals. Uh, uh, there's a uh, there's a large one health component, and of course, inspiring people to take action around the world. This is a, a principle of the foundation, and one that's that's a, a big part of what it is that we do. Uh, now, I work within a division called agriculture development. Agriculture development is one of the uh, 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 strategies, if you will, that's under an area that's referred to as global, global growth and opportunity, or uh, GGO. You may hear me use a, one or two acronyms in this talk. Uh, coming from the CG, is, which is an acronym, heavy uh, environment to the foundation, which is an acronym heavier environment. <laughs> uh, it's hard not to. Agriculture development is, is one of the main portfolios in the global growth and opportunity. And again, it emphasizes a little bit where and how we see agriculture working as, as a foundation priority, as a, a motor of growth, a motor to improve lives in, in the developing world. Uh, we work together and, uh, I mean, you'll note that we have, uh, 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 agriculture development, financial services for the poor. These two portfolios oftentimes talk to each other. We have uh, the WASH portfolio, so so water, sanitation, and hygiene. And, and again, you, you know, a nutritious diet isn't effective if you're constantly dealing with illness. And, and so, uh, so the foundation really does take a holistic, holistic look at these these types of topics and look for opportunities to 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 um, to uh, weave them together. Uh, what does AgDev actually do then? Well, AgDev builds its emphasis and builds its investment strategy around a concept that's called inclusive agriculture transformation. It's important to emphasize that this is as much as is possible country-led in the sense that we're working very closely with national partners in the countries where, where we're working and where we're collaborating to, to develop approaches that are demand-driven. And, and this, is a, uh, this is a priority, whether or not we're talking about our overall strategy or we're talking about individual activities that I'll kind of uh, blast through quickly here, uh, here in a couple of minutes. Uh, our emphasis, as I mentioned, we have this sort of targeted geography. Our, uh, our geography for agriculture development focuses predominantly on Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Uh, uh, there's a, a series of programs in, um, in India. We were working... Uh, uh, to try and ramp up in, in uh, Sri Lanka, but we uh, we saw the the, uh, the the consequences of a challenging policy environment in in, uh, in a Sri Lanka just uh, just recently. Uh, we're starting to work a little bit in uh, Nepal and 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 some of the areas um, adjacent to India as well. Uh, this idea of inclusivity is key. A lot of the work that we 
do focuses on how can we empower the poorest of the poor to participate in the agriculture system, but then also how can we assure that in environments that perhaps there may not be equitable access to technology or, or, or uh, there may be gender-based differences in, in a literacy rates, how can we engage in those environments to assure that there's increased equity and access over time? And so our four, four strategies within the AgDev division are really about improving land, labor, and livestock productivity, uh, increasing income for small-scale producers, improving access to and availability of nutritious diets, and then finally, women's empowerment in agriculture. That is one of our stated goals and one of our stated impact areas, and that's something that we actually review in every one of the grants that, 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 that we make. And so, so the way in which we work is we work closely with partners, we collaborate with partners, and those partners may be uh, uh, subject matter experts, they may be uh, representatives of national organizations or non-governmental organizations in the countries in which we're working. They may be universities in some instances in the countries and regions where we're working. We work with those partners to develop ideas. We look how those ideas align with our internal strategies. And then through a careful kind of uh, cultivation process, convening, uh, we, we start to identify where it makes sense to make the investments and where we hope to have uh, uh, the largest possible outcome. Again, in a coordinated way across those different goals that I mentioned before. Uh, uh, notice how labor productivity pops in uh, as, as one of the key, uh, key priorities. When I started working with the foundation, I, I really saw this opportunity to emphasize that. And having just uh, finished a paper on labor productivity with, uh, with some colleagues, it was almost like a, a uh, diversion, uh, it, it really seemed like a good fit to, to start thinking about that in, um, in a semi-systematic way. Uh, so one of the interesting things is that we, we talk a lot in the foundation about uh, impact. Uh, that's, uh, that obviously drives the majority of our conversation and the majority of our thinking, but how we actually have impact is easier said than done. Uh, this is one summary that I saw that, uh, that one of my colleagues who works more on, on uh, kind of technology-focused aspects of, uh, of agriculture development put together. And, and it really is about uh, advancing the development of novel, and effective, if novel, effective, and affordable solutions that, uh, again, address those four strategic goals in some way, shape, or form. Um, a large part of what we try and do is, A, incentivize uptake, so, so foster the uh, the reason why uh, or increased awareness of the reasons why the uptake of a particular technology, uh, uh, be it a crop with desirable, uh, uh, say, tolerances to drought or heat, or uh, perhaps it could be uh, a, a climate information service, why it makes sense to utilize that, that technology. Uh, a lot of what it is that we do is also work on de-risking. And this is something you hear a lot, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning. De-risking is when we start looking at how risk can be shared amongst different actors in the system or actually even taken out of the system. There's uh, there's several ways to approach this, this, uh, this de-risking uh, uh, context. And then the final piece, and, and this is a really critical one and where a lot of really interesting work gets done, is we spend a lot of time thinking about how to engage the private sector. Uh, 
with with the um, uh, the emphasis of, of of Bill and Melinda over the years, uh, private sector has been a very important player in a lot of the developments that that. Uh, that the foundation is, has been paying attention to. And in fact, in a lot of the countries in, in, in which we're working, the private sector is one of the main engines to scale a, a context appropriate technology. And, and so, so working hand in hand with the private sector, uh, when you think about agriculture at scale, it's important to understand that, that a small scale producer is a business person. Uh, that person needs access to inputs. That person needs access to the best possible seeds. That person needs access to market information. That person needs access to a market. Uh, it's important to, uh, to sort of recognize that there's this network of meso-level actors that are really partially in the private sector, partially in the public sector, and sometimes parastatal uh, that are really about enabling the use and, and uptake of these, uh, these innovations that, uh, that we've been discussing. Um, in, in the overall strategy, it's, it's divided in, in sort of three, three sort of segments or phases, if you will, stages. Uh, there's what we might characterize as the upstream innovation phase. And uh, that upstream phase is where, for instance, a lot of the crop R&D goes on. This is, uh, this is Nick's area, for example. Uh, th this is, uh, might be um, a varietal improvement. Uh, one of our programs is called Savvy Seed Systems and Accelerated Varietal Improvement. Uh, and, and those are where we're working closely with the agriculture infrastructures within the, the uh, countries and regions in order to improve the capacity of the National Agriculture Research uh, and Extension Services to be more effective stewards of the uh, the agriculture system within their country to provide um, uh, access to improved variety or certified seed at, at scale. Uh, uh, livestock is a key uh, key component. We spend a lot of time talking uh, uh, about uh, livestock, both in terms of uh, uh, varietal, varietal improvement species uh, 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 characteristics, as well as uh, vaccinations, as well as the infrastructure required to 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 assure that vaccines can can reach as many animals as, as possible. And then digital farmer services, it's another area where I spent a lot of time working in terms of climate services, digital financial services for, for farmers and, and, and uh, small scale producers. Uh, in the enabling environment, we have this, this global advocacy and, and a donor alignment component. This is where we're actually working at the higher level, more at the political level, to bring together actors that are interested in shared goals. And, and so, so a donor alignment, there's a, a, one of the new terms that I learned was crowding in. I, I think of crowds and being the introvert that I am, that's a negative connotation immediately in, in my mind. But in, in this world, in the philanthropic world, that's actually a very important concept because you bring in multiple philanthropies and multiple donor organizations, official development assistance, partners uh, around a common problem. And, and so, so this is a really key emphasis for us is to work with these different partners, work with the multilateral development banks, work with, with official development assistance. Uh, when I say ODA or official development assistance, does that mean anything to anybody? Think USAID, okay? Uh, and, uh, and then of course, uh, uh, we have a division that's dedicated to this theme of women's empowerment. They spend a lot of time working with other teams to ensure that we're adequately incorporating uh, uh, gender considerations uh, within the, the uh, grant-making process. 
We have the, uh, the uh, Nutritious Food Systems Group as an enabling environment. And then, of course, the team that I'm on now, which is called Adaptation Systems and Integration. And that's where we have this big focus on weaving climate adaptation into everything that we do, not just making grants for climate adaptation, but actually working closely with our partners, working with Nick and his team and, 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 and the other folks to make sure that climate adaptation is woven in or part of as many as much of our grant making as is, as is possible. And then on, on the kind of most downstream section, we have the, the, uh, the country systems. And this is where we're actually working very closely with national partners and, and bringing the, uh, the sort of different opportunities, different grants together uh, uh, with those partners in a more delivery focus and, and deployment focus on the environment. Um, when, when you look at this or when you unpack it a little bit, you know, one way to think about it is based on, on the constraints. And, and here, uh, we just highlight a couple. On, on the production side, we're, we're dealing with everything from pests to the fact that there's an overuse of inputs that can be uh, uh, bad for both human and, and environment. Uh, on, the, uh, on the system side, there's, there's always a question of capital. This is something that we're continually wrestling with uh, all the way through uh, market access, uh, 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 transport, cold chains, uh, uh, those sorts of questions, down to limited access to nutritious foods. And so, so we work really closely with our partner organizations to address those constraints, look for innovation uh, opportunities where there may be, for instance, uh, a simple change to a, a, a process or a product, for instance, a vaccine that doesn't need refrigeration, that can really expand uh, 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 access to that particular uh, technology uh, it, it improves seeds. One place where we uh, we pay a lot of attention, uh, 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 crop inputs, uh, and 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 an area where I've spent a lot of my time working, both uh, both in the past and now, is on this knowledge and 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 the digital tools area. Um, why do we need the systems approach? One of the reasons is that we're dealing with these complex and, and compound problems. Okay. Uh, this, it's easy to have a vision of the challenges that we might be facing in developing world agriculture, but when you actually start to unpack it, we're simultaneously facing multiple challenges at one time. And so, so right now is a, right now in our sort of present era is a, is a really good example. We've seen the uh, sort of compounding risks that are coming out of uh, out of uh, uh, the pandemic and the sort of long tail of that. Obviously, climate change is a big challenge. We're facing increasing climate variability, increasing droughts, uh, uh, more flooding events, uh, and uh, higher temperatures. You name it. Uh, we are seeing changes in frontiers associated with pests and disease. And so locusts, for instance, is, is, is one big issue that we're seeing uh, 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 kind of interesting and, 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 and changing dynamic with. And then, of course, there's conflict. Uh, I just recently, when I was in the CG, we had been doing a lot of work in Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, we had a whole series of projects that we had to stop completely in their tracks because of the conflict in in the, uh, the uh, Tigray region there. And of course, you know, we, we had to work with our partners there, so we weren't leaving them in a lurch. And so we were able to come back and continue working with them once, once things, things settled down. And of course, that's exactly what, what, uh, uh, what we did. 
So there's a lot of information here. I won't go over it all, but again, these compounding challenges are potentially going to happen anywhere. We see it here in the U.S. right now: forest fires, flooding, uh, all all different kinds of things. Higher temperatures, higher humidity here here in Raleigh <laughs> coming together at once. Um, so so again, you know the. The idea of rolling climate in to the foundation in investment making and, and, and grant making isn't totally new. Uh, many divisions have been thinking about it for some time, particularly around, I'm um, again, heat tolerant crops, drought tolerant crops, uh, but, but the uh, climate information. But now we actually have this new division that I'm, I'm sort of the first wave of, of uh, within the context of the, uh, the foundation. And now we're actually looking at this from this sort of singular programmatic perspective in the sense that uh, we are looking, how can we invest in adaptation specific activities, but also ensure uh, to the extent that we can, that adaptation is a theme that's getting folded into all of the other grant making wherever possible and wherever <laughs> appropriate. Um, that's this idea of a whole of, whole of program. Uh, the foundation tends to love technology just to be very frank about it. And, and so we look for opportunities to, to leverage technology as ways of, of accelerating uptake, providing in, uh, faster access to, to information, to, to uh, new seed varieties, and, and to do so in a way that's as equitable as possible. I'm going to go through a couple of examples really quick, talk a little bit about prioritization, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll conclude for, for some uh, uh, Q&A. So as mentioned, we have this uh, specific emphasis on, on uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and, and South Asia, especially in AgDev. That's where all of our work is, is, uh, is uh, taking place. Um, sorry about these slides. The, there must be a different um, 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 screen dimension. Uh, what I've done here is I've taken a couple of examples from our, our different areas. We, uh, we have these sort of uh, different categories in which we're working. Uh, this is innovation for impact. That's where crop R and D goes. And and if um, if you notice, uh, we we have a lot of work that we've been doing in terms of on farm performance trials. Uh, we have some really neat digital tools that help farmers select from the best varieties um, in their local context. We've been doing some work in 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 a gene editing and allele mining, but again, that's investments that are getting made by the foundation in the expert partners, and it's up to those partners ultimately to leverage those investments to make the best relationships with with their partners over the long term. Uh, there's a couple of major goals though that are uh, uh, that are really important in that. For instance, uh, C4 rice is a big one that's been on the radar for for many uh, years. Uh, those of you who know about uh, C3 versus C4 crops might appreciate this is a big problem and uh, and and uh, potentially groundbreaking change if it becomes possible to to have the, a, a a C4 rice for for improved water use efficiency. Uh, Water-saving photosynthesis, rice, it recognizes the fact that insulation is fundamentally changing, temperature regimes are, are, are fundamentally changing. And we can actually accommodate some of those with information in the sense that if we know uh, how the season is changing, we can change the planting dates, for example, but that only gets you so far. And at some point, we need additional crop R&D, hybridization, and so on to, uh, to facilitate uh, the, uh, the desired outcomes. Um, on, on the digital front, 
uh, one of the nice things about digital is it's a complement to just about any other investment. And so, so we do a lot of work on, on uh, climate services and, and have found over the years that uh, 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 climate services tend to be fairly well taken up uh, once you can uh, help people understand how to use them, how to make smart decisions with, uh, with climate information and put in place the right infrastructure so, so people have access to clear and, and context-specific or locally tailored information. And, and again, that's a key part of what it is that we do is we look at these sort of locally led solutions so we can understand what works best where and work closely with those partners to, to uh, come at solving these problems from a, a, a demand driven perspective. Water resources is another area where, where our climate team is, is actually working quite a bit and, and quite uh, uh, deliberately. And, and it demonstrates that one of the areas in which we work is actually working closely with institutional partners uh, in order to develop strategies for cooperation. This is sometimes, I mean, this seems like an, uh, uh, an obvious uh, uh, area for work, but it's not always paid attention to. And so by, by just bringing in the right partners, bringing in the right expertise, in, in some cases, national partners might not have access to, to the expertise or, or uh, to the partner network uh, that they need to uh, develop effective water management strategies. That's the kind of thing that we can help that, uh, that we can help enable. Uh, it, it, uh, uh, the other uh, area where the, uh, the foundation spends a lot of time is in the investment of evidence databases. Uh, and those are made widely available to, to all of the, the national partners with, with whom we're working. Um, an area that, that we've been working on a lot lately, uh, especially with the, with the uh, COP coming up, the, the, the Conference of Parties, is on developing leadership. And so, so one of the things that, that you've, uh, you might have seen over the, uh, the years recently is there's a, a, a shift towards increasing presence of African voices in the COP. And part of the reason is the COP has, has historically been dominated by Western slash Northern voices. And what we're seeing is more demand for uh, 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 the African countries to go and present, to go and negotiate. But when you look at it, uh, the U.S. might send a delegation of 40 people uh, for, you know, spanning a, a dozen different sectors. Meanwhile, a, a country in Africa might send one person spanning five sectors. It's just not a level playing field. And so we're working a lot in, 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 in programs and processes to improve opportunities to to uh, have the African uh, uh, countries be more active in, in their, their uh, negotiation processes. We've invested a lot in a number of different institutions around the, the continent. And it's, it's actually uh, become a really interesting uh, uh, focus for us. Um, and then of course we have uh, uh, country volatility and risk management. This is an area where, where we're actually working with, with our key partners. Uh, to, to, again, uh, reduce risk, share risk. This involves uh, a better understanding of agriculture risk management processes. It involves uh, the, the design and development of agriculture risk management tools, and then uh, uh, the implementation or co-implementation of early warning systems and, and other climate information systems, climate forecasts, and, and, and so forth to improve risk management outcomes. And you can see my former organization is, is, uh, is uh, one of the key partners there. Uh, 
And then finally, this piece on labor productivity. Uh, the, uh, the paper that we just wrote with, uh, with some colleagues identified these, these six different areas where we have the opportunity to improve labor productivity in, in agriculture systems. And this paper was actually motivated by this idea that if you can improve labor productivity, everything else gets better. Uh, and, and there's some evidence to support that in, yeah, I'm, I'm in the literature. What I realize is that when I start looking at climate adaptation, it fits into every one of these categories. And at the same time, what I also realize is there is a big problem with organizations like the foundation, organizations like, um, uh, a, a multilateral development uh, banks coming in and saying, Here's the list of things you should be doing in order to combat climate change or take on the challenges that, uh, that you have. And in every case, uh, it's like there's more things to do than there is money to do it. And, and so this uh, uh, gets into an area where, where we've been working, which is, uh, again, on, in the evidence generation category where we do analyses where we work on identifying where the trade-offs are. We work closely with our, our, our national partners. And in fact, we're approached frequently by national partners, by national governments to help identify the optimum set of solution given the budgets that are available. And, and so, so it, um, in that case, we, uh, we, we work closely with those partners, again, to develop strategies to prioritize based on the available budget, based on the problems at hand, based on the expertise that they have in place in the country, and ultimately what their, uh, their national priorities are, are determined to be. Um, this investment prioritization is done through a series of models. Uh, and I'll just, in the next screen, show you one set of model results and then, uh, then conclude for, for, uh, for uh, questions. But this idea of looking at Adaptation approaches, agriculture development approaches from an economy-wide perspective is, again, a large part of the interaction we have with our international partners uh, to co-create the uh, agriculture development agenda based on the demand coming from the, the, the uh, countries in, in, in a question. And so here, uh, one of the things that we talk about in the economy-wide model is, is, again, what is the GDP growth? poverty reduction, job creation, and diet quality. And increasingly, we're working towards bringing in a gender component uh, into these, uh, these model results. So we align very well with the, the uh, Gates Foundation strategies. Uh, we have the ability to analyze the investments across the, 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 uh, the uh, strategic areas using what's called a policy stack. And this allows us to take different types of investments, whether or not we're talking about uh, uh, crop R&D, inputs, extension, and so on. It allows us to understand where the impact is likely to be seen for different investment areas. And then we can put those together and then try and understand how each investment is contributing to the foundation priorities. In this case, poverty reduction, uh, 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 job creation, the, the increase in the agri-food GDP and and diet quality. And so by working with national partners, we can then sit down and we can say, okay, here's a budget. Here's where you desire your outpacks. And these are the portfolios of strategies and development activities 
that can have the desired outcome while uh, a adapting to climate change, b having uh, uh, increased women's empowerment, or whatever the other goals and, and priorities are of the countries in which we're working. And a large part of the work that's ongoing in the CG right now is again focused on uh, the development of these models to provide decision support in the country and apply context. Um, I think that is more or less it. Uh, this is not the solution. This is not the answer. I, our, our work in the foundation is really about to accelerate climate adaptation. Climate adaptation is a process. It's not an end game. Uh, it's something that we have to continually do and, and, and continually respond to. Uh, the challenges being faced by, by small-scale producers are greater and increasing. Uh, in spite of the fact that we're making significant advances in, in climate adaptation. And again, our focus is on inclusive agriculture transformation in a demand-driven uh, way. We work with the, the uh, countries in question, uh, identify what they would like for their strategy, look at the ways in which we can invest, look at what, what their specific needs are, and, and again, take this sort of locally-led, locally-tailored approach to improve agriculture development outcomes over the long term. And that is it. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, thank you. That was really great. Um, well, if anyone in here has a question, we can get started here. But if you're online, um, go ahead and use the raise your hand function by clicking on the reactions and then raise hand at the bottom of your screen. Or feel free to type your question into the chat. Um, this week, if your question is typed in the chat, I'll just read it aloud. And if you want to ask your question directly, please use the raise your hand. And then uh, I think that will help the process be more efficient. Okay, Zach. Oh, excuse me. Um, you had that one on the labor productivity topic that you were uh, talking about. You had one uh, figure that you went through, I think, pretty quickly that showed like the share of GDP or the share of uh, off-farm employment or something. Um, but anyway, the question, you don't know, really need to pull it back up, but part of the motivation for, it sounds like, for improving labor productivity is to enable more of the population to move out of the agriculture, basically. Uh, I guess, is that, is that Yeah, I, I wouldn't answer about? quite that way. Uh, actually, in some instances, there's, uh, there's, there's efforts on, in uh, some countries where we've been working to move more people back into agriculture, because uh, uh, what's happened is there's been a lot of uh, rural-urban migration for the purposes of remittances, uh, but now the food system is left under attended. And so, so one of the big issues around labor productivity is agriculture is a more interesting job if, you're, if your labor is effective and, and people are more likely to engage in agriculture if the, the returns to input, be it labor or, or whatever else, are, are high. Whereas if you're just eking out, you know, a, you know, a small profit uh, with lots and lots of hard work and, and it's highly uncertain due to these, for instance, climate variability factors, that's not a very desirable place to be. It makes sense to go off and, and, and find a job in, um, in the city. So it's, it's not just to move people out of agriculture, but there is a question of, you know, what, what is the right scale? And, and I think this is, this is something that we're all struggling with in, in the agriculture development community. There are places where individual farmers 
can do quite well. Uh, and, 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 and we use the term small scale producer at, very deliberately because a farmer implies somebody who has land. Uh, whereas a small scale producer may be a pastoralist or an agro-pastoralist doesn't actually have any land tenure. And so, so there's a real complex dynamic there, but it's not specifically to move people out of agriculture. It might be to move people to different places within the agriculture value chain with things like high value products. That was one of the last things that, uh, that I mentioned. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, it's, it's a big picture question. That's part of it, but then there's a part of also staying in agriculture. That's part of my question, and you addressed the other part, which was it seemed like there was some tension between the supporting small scale producers, but there's also this inherent, I mean, I've seen in the development community this thesis that we need to expand opportunities elsewhere in the economy by freeing up labor from, from agriculture. But I don't understand this heterogeneous. In the yeah, and, and that varies by geography, and, and that's a very big question, and uh, certainly a an important question, but uh, uh, but again, no no single answer to that. It, it varies tremendously by you know, by local context. Related to that, excuse me, from local stories and even some comments from last week's um, colloquium, the uh, rural to urban migration and labor availability, training and productivity are issues here too. This is not just um, not just an international issue. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting point. And, and again, there, there are certain advantages we have here in terms of economies of scale and, and, and these sorts of things that would be nice to realize in certain instances in, in a developing world context. But then at the same time, uh, it doesn't it's not a panacea. <laughs> so, Gene uh, has a question online. Gene, would you like to unmute yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jean Ristino. I'm, I uh, was a Jefferson Science Fellow at USAID Bureau for Food Security a number of years ago, and I've done some work with the Gates Foundation over the years in convening an African plant health initiative in Africa. And uh, a big part of helping move women farmers, and particularly smallholder women farmers, out of poverty is uh, empowering them. And there was a an index developed a few years ago called the Women's Empowerment Index that IFCRI developed. And I'm wondering if you all are tapping into that to uh, and integrate it into your agricultural platform because when smallholder farmers and women farmers are empowered, you know, through finances, maybe digital agriculture services to get their crops to market or forming cooperatives, they can scale their agriculture. It might be a a whole conglomerate of women, not one at single farmer, but they form these communities of farmers that can move their products. So these sorts of tools really help empower groups of smallholders. And I'm just curious if you're if that's on your radar. Uh, absolutely, uh, we work closely with IFPRI on on the Women's Empowerment Index. There was a slide that I showed. Uh, this one right here. Uh, and this this uh, uh, lower um, uh, a box here is actually uh, tightly tied to the IFPRI uh, uh, Women's Empowerment Index, and our Women's Empowerment Group also uh, works closely with them. Every grant has a process of going through what's called a gender marker, and that's an evaluation both by the 
the the uh, program officer and and our 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 strategic folks on the way in which the grant is 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 addressing women's empowerment specifically, whether it is or isn't, uh, and then then if it is to to what degree. So yes, very much on the radar. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. That's a very useful tool, and it's it's one that we continue to to invest in and 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 uh, see see develop. Yes, I get it. Go ahead. I'm. I'll. I'll leave it to you all. Jennifer. Okay. I was just um, curious about how you engage local communities in deciding where to spend your resources. You know, a lot of development has moved towards more anti-colonialism approaches, sure. and so, and sometimes development work in the past has been more, you know, colonialistic, if you will. <laughs> so, how are you engaging local communities to make sure they're part of the process, part of the design, part of the decision making? I guess. Yeah, great question, and one that, that we've struggled with in the ag development community for quite some time. It's one of the existential uh, debates, and I think that that we've seen a lot of progress in um, in that regard. Where we're at with the Gates Foundation is is a very strong emphasis on what we characterize as proximal partners, and so increasingly there's a uh, there's a trope in in the development community that you know we made this investment with a, you know a, a big university because that's where the capacity is but the quick response is well if you made the investments with the more local organizations that's where the capacity would be and so so um, increasingly our focus is on on cultivating and empowering a network of, of local partners I, I highlighted two uh, two areas where this is taking place within our organization and the uh, country delivery systems. That's a large part of, of where we're working very directly with those, those local organizations and regional organizations, for instance, at the continental or subcontinental scale in, um, um, in Africa. And then likewise, in the, uh, the uh, themes where we're uh, uh, developing African leadership, those again are the same uh, same types of investments. Investments made directly to African organizations and Indian organizations uh, that are really designed to to start moving capacity, uh, uh, ownership uh, of of grant outcomes to to those those locally led organizations. Um, in in the CG, it was it was a little more grassroots because we were more closer to the implementation. Uh, though the CG itself is, has been criticized in more than one thesis uh, uh, and or article on on its sort of um, development paradigm, uh, let's say. So it's it's a hard question. Uh, it's one that the Gates Foundation has wrestled with uh, in a very open and and and, and uh, transparent way, uh, and it's one where a lot of energy is 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 uh, getting spent uh, to assure that we're working closely with institutions within the areas that, uh, that we're working. Great, thank you. Um, Fred, did you still have a question? Uh, to, to follow up in this sense, one was you chose to work in India and Africa. Obviously, that was strategic move. And it's curious to understand why South America or Bangladesh or others are really affected. We're not sure. Yeah, that's a good question. And I probably don't have a good answer for that. Uh, in short, I, I would say when one starts looking at the dynamics, particularly in ag development around small scale producers, 
the small scale producers and the challenges faced by small scale producers in India uh, and in the focal countries in Africa are are really some of the hardest most difficult challenges to address and i and i my sense is this is steve answering not steve the program officer answering uh my sense is is that that there is a recognition that if we can really work and where these the problems are the hardest uh, that will have the potential to make them you know the most advancement the 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 focus in africa is uh, in, in a few countries, but then also with some regional organizations. For instance, AGRA has been uh, uh, a large recipient of, of uh, uh, foundation funds over the years. That's a continental scale organization in Africa that has uh, about a dozen countries or so in, in its membership. But the focus has largely been Ethiopia, Nigeria, Tanzania to a degree, and, and a couple others. So just to, related to general studies in Africa, especially, History and development programs they haven't worked, and for many reasons, I was just saying, as new employees, <laughs> you know, I mean, do they start you out with lessons learned and how we're gonna do this, or is it? But, um, no, there's no <laughs> lessons learned. Uh, However, I, I would say most of us enter with a with a general awareness of, of these challenges. In fact, I, I mentioned it outright. I, there was there was no obfuscation in in this sense, in that the old school development paradigm was, uh, in essence, uh, countries that were the source of development finance coming in and saying, "This is what needs to be done. Here's the big list." And then, in essence, what happened was, uh, for instance, in the development of nat uh, national adaptation plans, uh, it just became a laundry list of every adaptation activity possible under the sun. And that doesn't work. There's, 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 there's no direction, and it doesn't recognize that budgets need to be right size. And so a large part of this priority setting process that, uh, that we're working with now, this is, uh, this is with one of our, 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 our key policy folks in, um, in the foundation, is really about the recognition that Budgets are limited uh, and we need to have impact within the sort of priority areas and the, the available um, resources. And then that means that the paradigm of, of the foundation is shifting to is really towards making the most of those available resources, kind of recognizing that if we can stretch each dollar and help the country stretch each dollar, uh, then, then what you can accomplish with a right size investment is actually has a potential to be more effective than it might have been in the past. Again, making that coming from the demand driven and locally led perspective. Along those lines of, of local effectiveness, um, you had briefly mentioned extension services mm -hmm. in, in, in one place. Um, it's my understanding that, that at least in some African countries, such a service doesn't even exist, or um, it's just seen as government and government is not trusted, whereas the, the local connections will are, are trusted and, and there, see, there seems to be some, some success there. So a question is, what is, what is your understanding of the, the status of extensions type services in the developing world you're working with? Um, how are they built and, and how are they funded and how does Gates Foundation interact with it? So it's actually quite varied. 
extension services, uh, the biggest limitation is simply capacity of the system, okay? When, uh, when they have a, a sort of well-thought-out extension system in place, it's just a, their ability to get around to, to, to everybody who needs that, uh, uh, that type of consultation. Uh, two examples just to contrast, compare, uh, compare and contrast a little bit. In, in Ethiopia, uh, the, the ag development priorities tend to be very government-led, uh, and, and there tends to be a system in place that gets at extension and, and sort of these priorities, but through, through a, a very government-led strategy. And, and they've been relatively successful. They have, uh, they've had several iterations over the years, but they have now what are called uh, uh, development agents. And, and uh, those, uh, those development agents work closely with a variety of communities. And then there are farmer groups that, again, sort of model the practices and then share knowledge in, in these extended networks. In Kenya, what we've seen more lately is it's tending to be a little bit more private sector led in the sense that there's a recognition that, hey, we can do a lot of these things with technology. If we bundle uh, uh, products and services, for instance, access to certified seed, uh, insurance products, uh, microcredit, uh, then we can actually lower our risk as a, as a, a, a small-scale um, um, enterprise in agriculture by including things like climate services and, and agronomic management practices. So, uh, so there's a tilt towards bundling services from the private sector side. And now we're seeing a little bit of these models converge so in Ethiopia, for instance, I've, I've recently been working with a small company called Lursha. It's, it's actually a really neat company if you want to uh, look them up, uh, uh, Lursha.com. Uh, and they, uh, they work very closely with the, the Ethiopian government development agents to uh, provide services to those, those uh, development agents. At the same time, their private sector model is linking the small-scale producers into, for instance, the uh, banking and finance communities, uh, and, and, and sort of a, uh, cooperative, uh, use of, of say mechanization and other, uh, other types of things like that. So, so there's some new models that are emerging that I think address some of these challenges with extension and, and the private sector has been, a, a, a actually really major innovator in a, in a lot of areas in that regard. It seems like the digital tools, some of those that you were talking about would be very helpful. They're huge. Even from yep. the government's extension. Standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I think Kara had her question. Had a question. I did. I know we only have like a minute left. Um, Go ahead and ask real quick. Um, okay. One of your goals was to de-risk technologies by demonstrating their utility. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious, which risks? Well, so so uh, an example is um, it, we produced a climate service several years ago in in my job as a principal scientist uh, working in, in, uh, in uh, Columbia, the idea was to provide climate information to, to farmers. Best laid plans, right? Uh, the, the, uh, the forecast really were, and in fact, uh, with some of the analytics the year prior, rice farmers were, uh, had made a decision in a particular region not to uh, actually plant their rice. It was a terrible season. The farmers that planted the rice uh, uh, lost a, a, a good chunk of the crop. So it was like this big success story. Everyone was excited. Climate information saves, uh, 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 saves uh, the day. But that was a very tailored example, right? It was very, it was the Rice Association working very closely with our research organization, working very closely with the farmers. Everything was happening in lockstep. 
We then took that knowledge. We made a climate service that was now easy to access, semi-automated, and just about anyone could pull it up and get uh, I, I, I get a forecast. We did a user uh, engagement study, UX, UI, you know, how is the user experience? How, are, how much do they improve their decision-making? And we simulated decision-making uh, using the climate information that we provided that had all the information to make smart decisions about what the cropping decisions should be for that, uh, that season. And we had farmers and technicians and extension agents and a variety of different experts do it. The outcomes in this simulation were worse for the people that use the climate service than not. And so, so then we had to unpack, why is this? And what we realized was there, there was not a clear understanding of how the information sort of translates to decision-making, right? that a lot of that had been actually, you know, kind of done by, by the experts within the you know, Rice Growers Association, but that the individuals who are actually responsible for taking the decision never quite got to the point where they had the capacity to understand the uncertainty associated with the decision, how to apply the uncertainty to their, their individual cropping decisions. And so that led to a whole series of capacity building exercises that were built eventually built into the system where anybody who uses the system would have to go through this sort of mini training on how to make better decisions with the climate information that's being provided. In that way, we, we de-risk the use of the information, but also the, uh, uh, the farmer uh, season as well, because it, uh, the good information is now actually being used in a more or less proper way. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one tangible example from, from my old job. Yeah. That's great. We're gonna have to call it here. It's, uh... We're out of time. Um, we hope to see everyone again next week. Thank you to everyone who logged in online um, and have a good week. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah.